Hello, and welcome to the Don't Get Mad podcast, where we attempt to discuss important, difficult topics without losing our minds, our tempers, or our dignity. Now, on this show, we're not neutral, but we do commit to being reasonable, civil, and genuinely interested in refining our own ideas, as well as influencing others. We do not stoke outrage, we don't call people names, we don't question motives, and we make a sincere attempt to understand people who see things differently than we do. Now, I will say, Steve, for this episode, uh, I am somewhat tempted to rename the podcast just for this episode, the Don't Get Sad podcast, rather than Don't Get Mad. This is not going to be so much a debate as a processing of all the information we've gotten over the past week about this um, terrible invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And uh, I don't know about you, but over the past week, I've taken in more news about the invasion than probably is good for me. It's probably true for a lot of people. And uh, on a couple of occasions, I have found myself actually shedding a few tears. It's hard not to. I, yeah. I have felt the same way. Um, maybe I was naive, but I honestly thought that uh, the human race had progressed past this sort of thing, had had gone past, I know that sounds terribly naive, uh, past wars of conquest and this uh, this process of killing large numbers of people and displacing huge numbers of people. There are already several thousand dead, and there's a million refugees from Ukraine after a week of, of fighting, a million refugees. That's a million lives shattered, and it's hard to think about all of that without losing some faith in humanity. Now, I know that war has been a defining feature of human history for as long as people have existed, but uh, up until World War I, War meant mostly men beating and stabbing each other, and that's plenty bad, but during the two world wars, that's when we started introducing machine guns and heavy artillery and tanks and mines and bombs raining from the sky, and we just got much more efficient at causing widespread death and destruction. So my impression of the narrative of history was that everyone had learned their lesson after World War II, that modern warfare just represented such a complete catastrophe for everyone involved that it wasn't worth it anymore. And so after World War II, we created a community of nations that would prevent that sort of thing from ever happening again, because peace is in everyone's interest. And at this point, modern warfare is just too destructive to ever be a rational choice. Um, but that doesn't uh, appear to be the case. Well, and I think you hit on um, the key word, rational. War is seldom rational. And I think that when we take a look at what's going on in Ukraine, by the way, I, I echo much of what you just said. Um, I consumed so much information over the past week. And uh, we were talking about it before we started uh, rolling the recording. I've, I've been inundated with so many small bits of information, but so many small, horrific bits of information that it, it, it at times becomes overwhelming. I have as well shed a few tears this past week, especially since we know people uh, from our church who are from Ukraine. Um, we know people who have served in Ukraine and have uh, worked to spread the gospel in Ukraine. And it is, it's just horrifying when I hear some of the flagrantly blatant lie talking points coming out of uh, Vladimir Putin's mouth about denazification when the president of Ukraine is a Jew. And it, the Russians bombed the Holocaust Memorial in Ukraine. So 
Uh, I am I am there with you on much of this. And I think that that key word you said in the last phrase was rational. I think sometimes we try to put rational explanations to irrational uh, acts. And uh, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, you know, the goal here, I don't know. We, we well, I don't know what your thoughts are after I go on that rant. So um, I think what we try to do here, so we're used to... Um debating things, but this isn't going to be as much of a debate, I don't think, uh, as just an attempt to kind of process all of the news and uh, to uh, form some ideas about it. I I like to try to figure out where this might be headed. Um, and uh, although I'll tell you, when we started, uh, we start, we originally wanted to record this a week ago, and I think both of us were anticipating, like the rest of the world was, that in a couple of days, Zelensky would be dead and organized resistance would be over and uh, Russia would be pretty firmly in control. And it hasn't gone that way at all. So making any sort of guess about how things are going to go is difficult. Yeah, I think when, when, when we take a look at this, this conflict, when we take a look at this slaughter that Russia has unleashed, and there is no two ways to, no ways, two ways about it. It is a slaughter. Um, yes, the Ukrainians are putting up a valiant effort, but they are so outnumbered by just pure uh, mechanized onslaught and the bombings, the relentless bombings, that their capacity to disable the Soviet or the Soviet, the Russian. In fact, that's the problem. He wants to bring back the Soviet empire. He wants to bring back the Soviet empire. And that is, it, it's clear from the creeping way the annexed Crimea, Crimea uh, entered Georgia. He thinks he can do that. Um, and then there are going to be some walls in the way of that because many of those other former Soviet states are now NATO states. Yeah. And that's going to be an issue. But when you take a look at this in the lead up to where we are today, you had lots of warning. Biden and the administration were saying over and over and over, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. But there were no sanctions up front. Um, I think historians are going to be debating the wisdom of that strategy for years to come. Um, was it the right strategy? What could have been done that wouldn't have antagonized him up front or wouldn't have blunted the pain that the Russian people were going to feel or wouldn't have you know, made them feel like given the state media that they are saturated with, that is painting this as denazification and demilitarization. When the US comes and the EU comes and puts sanctions on before anything has even happened, you now have a martyr state. Instead of what you have now, which is a reaction, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but I see the two sides of that argument. And that's kind of where we were getting built up to this. Then you got this post-invasion response when it becomes clear that Russia is they're they're moving in. They aren't just knocking at the door. They're not just amassing troops just to kind of put the scare in somebody. But they're coming in indiscriminately and they are going after every target they can find, throwing cluster bombs in civilian population centers, vacuum bombs in civilian population centers, bombing near hospitals, bombing, bombing, bombing with no clear target, no clear military justification whatsoever, other than playing it back in the homeland that the, the total myth 
that the Ukrainian military is parking their uh, resources inside hospitals and churches and schools as if they're using their own people as human shields. Clearly not the case. And the reporting on the ground that is getting out, that is not being censored, is clearly showing that 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 is a lie. And so it gets to that question. This is one I think you and I are, um, you know, this is the big one. Do they stand a chance? I mean, where is this going? You said it when you talked about um, Zelensky being killed in the first few days. He hasn't been. So I don't know. What, 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 I don't know. Where do you think this is going? So I want to uh, respond to a couple of things you said. You mentioned um, that it sure sounds like Putin's trying to get back to the rebuild the Soviet empire. In some respect, one of the one of the speeches he gave actually critiqued some of the things that the Soviets did. It's almost as if he's going back before that to the czars. Um, it sounds like he wants to, you know, restore the Russian empire, you know, because he actually I read some polling, some interesting polling in in Russia that when you ask for um, people's the people's opinion in Russia of their former leaders, they all get negative ratings, uh, except for I think Khrushchev gets a a uh, neutral rating, but the last guy, the last leader of Russia who is remembered positively is Tsar Nicholas II. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it occurs to me that, and, and remember that speech that he gave justifying the invasion, he actually critiqued the mistakes of the Soviets setting up Ukraine and setting up these independent countries. So he's ready to, to take a shot at the Soviets and he's trying to restore the, <clears throat> the Russian empire. I mean, that, if that sounds like loony thinking, I mean, I, I think it is. Um, and I think a big part of how we got here is, this is almost embarrassing to talk about, that it would be a, a, um, a reason for a geopolitical crisis and for a humanitarian disaster, that Putin is having the uh, 70-year-old dictator's version of a midlife crisis. And it was, <laughs> it was on his bucket list to restore the glory of the Russian empire. And yeah. he's pushing 70 years old and there seemed to be an opportunity. And so he wanted to do it. And for me, that underlines among other things, the dangers of autocracy that yeah. in, in any other governmental system, there's a bunch of other voices around the pow power is dispersed so that if one guy has a, a bonkers idea like that, um, he can't do it unilaterally. He needs to rally support and other people can stop him. But in Russia, of course, that's not true. Well, it's not just, and, and this is the danger, and you probably can imagine where I'm about to go with this comment. <laughs> uh, Mar Marco Rubio made a comment uh, on Twitter for which he was widely and quite, I think in some way justifiably mocked that uh, there are people, you know, Putin has surrounded himself with people who only tell him what he wants to hear and uh, uh, won't challenge him with the truth. And, uh, you know, and I'm sitting there going, and where else have we heard that for the last four years? And I'm sitting there going, this, this happens in any government. If you do not have leaders who willfully and purposefully surround themselves with people who are going to say no, or who are going to speak truth in moments that they don't want to hear truth, and who they are going to respect, you wind up with Putin. 
you wind up with a consolidation of power to the point where there is nobody there to stop him. And, and this is, this is the, the, the challenge that I think the world is up against. And this goes back to your original question, which I think is, is I hadn't even thought about it before you raised it, or not even a question, but the statement about rational choices. It is not rational in today's world where we are so globally interconnected for commerce and for the free transit of peoples across borders, with the exception of North Korea. It's, it's not rational to want to annex anybody or to want to forget nuclear weaponry, forget the, the threat of nuclear war that Putin himself has ratcheted up here. It just doesn't make any sense because the wealthiest people, these oligarchs, are the ones who are most invested in it and should, in theory, have the most power. Because if you buy this notion of the military industrial complex going back to the Eisenhower era, it doesn't make sense. It's not making anybody money. It's not making anybody wealthier to attack other countries. And and I think that's um that's a big key in my mind to predicting where this should is likely to go. Even an autocrat needs to be making somebody happy, needs a base of support. Even if it's small, it's got to be composed of powerful people. So if, um, as you said, this has got to be upsetting to the oligarchs, nobody is profiting off of this. I would think the rational, but again, maybe that's the dangerous thing to, to conclude that they're going to behave rationally. But the rational thing to do for the oligarchs is to get Putin out of there, pin the whole thing on him. I mean, it, it looks to me like an unfolding disaster for Russia at this point. But it sure seems like it. Now, you, you know, you raise a good point, and I'm going to kind of piggyback on it here. It, think about Xi Jinping in China. Xi Jinping has a very similar situation that he's been brewing up for the last, uh, what, 50 <laughs> however long he's been in power, and then before that, however long China's been uh, dealing with the Taiwan issue, where he's been making the case, sending the flyovers, building the forces, ready to move into Taiwan. And now he is seeing what the world is ready to do to react to a uh, political incursion into a sovereign country, except for one thing. China controls the means of manufacturing globally. They they are one of the biggest sources of goods around the world. Look at look at our auto manufacturing situation. What are we going to do? What are we going to sanction China if they go and invade Taiwan? And they very well could. But the thing is at home, Xi Jinping is smart about one thing. Having been in China, and we talked about this a little bit in the setup of uh, when I was in China uh, five years ago now, the thing that I noticed is China, in so many ways, in the major population centers, Shanghai, Beijing, it was like walking along the streets of any American city. Consumerism reigns supreme. They have this very quasi free looking, free market looking consumer economy going, blended with this very weird old school communism that uh, means that the people are placated. And so he gets away with doing things like the atrocities to the Uyghur Muslims, 
you know, throwing them into concentration camps, giving away their wives and their daughters to to be uh, married off and assaulted. Uh, he gets away with things because the large majority of the population is living in this presence of, yeah, we don't have it so bad. Well, you take a look at Russia. Putin has never done that with his economy. And the, the thing, when we take a look at where this could possibly go, short of the Russian uh, fuel pipeline being cut off, which is the biggest issue because they are such a major exporter, but there are other countries who can ramp up their exports. There is no long-term uh, upside to him pursuing this war because he will be isolated and the economy will fall to pieces because he has not diversified it. That being said, by the time that happens, Ukraine will be gone as, as a free country. Um, th th this is a, or if it's not gone, it will be so destroyed by these nuclear power plants being assaulted by entire cities being leveled and needing to be recreated from scratch. Uh, I just don't know how that country comes back. It will take something on the order of the magnitude of what happened in Central Europe after World War II, a mammoth undertaking. So I, I guess, I think we are going to at least somewhat disagree on, now I certainly see that as a possible trajectory for um, for the invasion. But at this point, I do, I am clinging to a more optimistic set of outcomes. I mean, they clearly, the way it looks to me was plan A was they're going to send the army in there and they're going to assassinate the leadership and they're going to capture Kiev and install a puppet government. And it was all supposed to take through two to four days. And obviously plan A didn't work out. So plan B is now what they're trying to do, which does, I think, involve leveling the cities, just turning Kiev and Kharkiv into piles of rubble, which, again, is irrational. I keep using that word. It doesn't make sense. I mean, they're trying to conquer a country. I mean, is the mentality that it may be a pile of rubble, but now it's our pile of rubble. I, like, I don't understand why, <laughs> why that gains them anything, but that does appear to be the plan. But... What we've seen is we saw we've seen this heroic resistance from the Ukrainian people, uh, the soldiers and the civilians both, and we've also seen a lot of incompetence from the Russians. I mean, they 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 sent this convoy, the forty mile long convoy, which is clearly supposed to turn Kiev into a pile of rubble, and they With ran no out, gas. they ran out of gas, and it's been stalled for a couple of days now, and obviously they're still trying to get it going, but. I'm not entirely convinced they're going to be able to get it going. Uh, in the meantime, the Ukrainians are able to uh, to attack it. Uh, and you've also heard rumors of, we've heard pretty solid reports of low Russian morale, but you've even heard rumors of some Russians in that convoy sabotaging the convoy themselves because they don't want to blow up Kyiv any more than the Ukrainians want it blown up. Um, so as I look at this, you know, mor Russian morale is already terrible. Uh, Russian competence is not very high. I don't see any sign of that improving. Um, now, Putin is clearly still committed to the plan. But I start to wonder, is it going to, is there any way to turn it around? I mean, 
the more soldiers and tanks and things they bring in there, why would we ever think that it's going to go any differently than the first round of overwhelming force that they brought in? I, well, you know, and I, I want to be optimistic about this. I, I, I want to be where you are. Um, because I do believe that the, the Ukrainian spirit in this and as evidenced in, in the face and the persona of Vladimir Zelensky, who is the most improbable of presidential figures when you think about it. Yes. Uh, he has shown the world what true leadership is. So regardless of what comes of all this, he is going down in the history books. I mean, his name will be spoken for generations of the time Russia attacked Ukraine. And it won't just be talked about in Ukraine and Central Europe and Russia. Hopefully Russia once they get their, their heads out of the clouds but or out of this censorship. But in the U.S., throughout the EU, this is going to be, he's going to be revered because of his willingness to put his life on the line and be there. Um, but it does raise a question. And, um, you know, before we go to break on this, um, because there's, there's a whole lot more to talk about here. Um, the question, I, first question that comes to my mind is, should Zelensky evacuate? Should he, should he get out of Ukraine, or should he at least move to a rear position and not in the center of government? What do you think? Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, begrudge him that if he chose to do it. But in terms of what helps the Ukrainian people the most, it's for him to stay right where he is. It's been great for it. It has not only inspired the Ukrainian people, it's inspired the world. I mean, that's one of the reasons why suddenly countries that were a little hesitant to give support suddenly gave a lot more support when they saw how he was fighting and how uh, the whole nation was rallying around him. And, and okay. Um, I'm kind of there as well. I'm torn. I want to see this guy survive. I want to see him stay in country as long as he can, but boy, I'd love to get him out of Kiev. I'd love to see that guy somewhere where he is in a position to continue to lead with command and control around him and continue to champion this with the, the EU and with NATO and with the UN and just keep applying the pressure because the day comes, if he, if he goes, who is next? Who is going to stand up and have that same cachet that he has developed globally? Um, I mean, look at, look at, I subscribe to his Twitter feed. You got to see this guy's action. He is constantly talking about the world leaders that he has talked to who have who have promised support. Think about this. They get off the phone with this guy. They know he's showing up on his Twitter feed. There ain't no going back. And so that's one of those things. I love the way this guy has been working that from the social media. And I think they need to hold on to that. I think he needs to be protected at all costs to be able to keep doing that. But boy, it's, it would be great if it could do that from real estate in Ukraine. Um, the other question I had for you, and I think this is kind of, this is the harder one for me, and I will confess my position on this, uh, is um, if we're really supposed to love our enemies the way Jesus says, how are we supposed to be dealing with this? Yeah. Okay. I actually had spent some time 
thinking about that. And there was a friend of mine that uh, I was discussing this with because we were texting back and forth. And I actually specifically said, because the more you analyze the situation, the more you come to the conclusion there is one individual who is now responsible for the deaths of several thousands and the displacement of a million, and it's he's just getting started. And you can pin it all on him. And I started cursing, and I started saying terrible things about the guy. And I actually, as I was talking to my friend, I, I said, you know, I, I've spent like a decade now trying to be a better Christian, which as I understand it means being for every single human being and, you know, not giving in to contempt and to, to anger and hatred. And I said, you know, I'm feeling really, I'm feeling real satisfaction just taking all of that pent up rage for the past decade that I've been trying to stifle and directing it right at Vladimir Putin. Um, and the thing that he's he said was, um, was that my friend, it advised me that uh, in, in Jesus, let's see, when Jesus was four years old, there was a rebellion among the Jewish people, and the Romans, um, the Romans crucified 200 or 400, I forget what it was, 200 or 400 rebels and lined them up for miles along the road, right near where Jesus lived. And yet that uh, Jesus died for the Romans as well as for everybody else. Um, and he also said specifically with, with Vladimir Putin um, that uh, he's a spy. He, it, that That's his background, that's his training. He grew up in a world where everyone is, is duplicitous. They're all lying. And uh, then he watched his country open up a little bit and it completely collapsed immediately. And so now none of that excuses anything that he's doing, but it does give it, I don't know. Anyway, I guess the short answer is we're supposed to, we're allowed to stop him. We're uh, the short answer. I went on for like five minutes today. All right. The, uh, the short answer is we are allowed to stop him. We are required to try to stop him. Yeah. We're also supposed to try our best not to hate him. I mean, the imperative not to hate applies to every single human being, and it's it's a challenge when a guy does stuff like this, but it it no less applies to him. Yeah, I'm about to confess something that would probably mean I will never get a job ever as a pastor in any church anywhere. And I, I by the way, I agree. I agree with just about everything you just said. It, it's the it's the sensation I have of that utter feeling of <laughs> ennui. Is it ennui? C- powerlessness. This 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 sense of I know what God would have me do as a follower of Jesus. And yet yeah. when I think of the suffering and the carnage, the unjustified carnage. There's no justification whatsoever for it. We are taught to love our enemies. We are taught to turn the other cheek. We are taught to go the extra mile, give away the cloak, all these things. And yet here comes this this monster, purely a monster. And if you think about it, 
What he's doing there in Ukraine is no less horrific, short of gas chambers, than what Hitler did when he went and marched through Europe. And for, for Putin to do this, I have to confess, and like I said, this confession, it will probably not earn me the pulpit in too many places. I prayed the other day for somebody to kill this guy. I prayed the other day that God would take him straight off this planet, send him straight to hell and end this carnage because it is destroying innocent life at a scale that is just unheard of in the last, the, the, the assault in this country is unheard of in the last, what, 50 years at least? 80. Uh, now, is 80. it as bad as the genocides that occurred in uh, Rwanda, in uh, Central Europe, in the nineties. Um, well, may get there. It may get there, but that's essentially what he's doing. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I'm so torn on that topic. I'm so torn. Let's take a quick break because we got some more hard topics to talk about here. I got a good one after the break. Okay. Uh, I I would love. I don't know if we're allowed to. I'd love to address somebody guess as you said there's sure. more to say all right uh, all right we'll be back well, we can wrap around we'll wrap around on it at the end okay all right be right back after this And we're back. And uh, Steve, it's my turn to ask you some uh, tricky questions to uh, see how we think this is going to go. So you ready? Uh, Here's an easy one. How much longer does Vladimir Putin remain the president of Russia? Is it uh, weeks, months, or years? Is he going to be fine after this? Wow. Wow. That's a tough question because it really depends on a couple of things. Uh, So here's my quick answer. Um, If I was a betting man, and I'm not, I would say it's five to two odds that he's gone within a year because the oligarchs in the military finally stand up to him and say enough is enough. We had it good for a while and you just screwed everything up. Um, I would say the even money, though, is that he stays present for some time and he continues to use state media to placate the masses, gin up their confidence in his ability to be you know, the strong leader and fight off the onslaught of the world that's trying to crush the Russian people with their unjust sanctions. Uh, so um, I'd say even money is he's going to be there at least another couple of years, but uh, there is a not an exact long shot that the oligarchs in the military finally stand up and say enough is enough. Okay. Uh, I'm going, this is a sort of a recurring theme. I'm more optimistic about this. I, I think this invasion is a catastrophe for Russia. And I think you got to be an idiot or crazy not to see that. And I think that, um, the, I think that Putin is crazy, but I think that, uh, 
not everybody in Russia behind him can be stupid or crazy. So I, I think he's gone within a couple of months. And uh, I hope he's gone quick enough to avoid, to limit the bloodshed. But I, I think he's going to be trying to do as much damage as he can before he uh, gets out of there. All right. So, um, so then here's another related question. Uh, how long is Russia going to have troops in Ukraine? Is this going to go on for a decade or two? Or are they done soon? If these sanctions take hold, and, they, and, and it goes along with your first question about Putin, if he sticks around for a while, these troops aren't going anywhere. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be effective. That means they hold small pieces of, of property, that they hold on to areas they already had a foothold in, that they reinforce these, if the reports are to be believed, demoralized, uh, disloyal troops with more loyal troops. They strengthen their supply chains to make sure that these troops don't truck 40 mile convoys to get stalled because they ran out of gas or because the tires were flat or because they didn't have enough food. Uh, I think that the Russian troops, if Putin, if Putin goes, the troops go. If Putin stays, the troops stay. I think he is the kind of person like certain other politicians we know of who cannot back down if it means losing face. And that's that's kind of where I think this is going with the troops. My I want to believe with you. I want to agree with you and believe what you say about him being gone sooner rather than later. But like I said, I think that's the five to two odds. I think it's more even money that he's going to be around a while and therefore the troops are going to be there a while. OK, so we basically agree with the reasoning that the answer to number two is almost the same as number one, that when Putin goes, the troops go not before, not after. Yeah. Um, so another question, here's a big one that's been, mm. uh, that's very difficult. A lot of people are working on this very important question right now. But eventually, at some point, do Americans or other NATO countries end up fighting the Russians directly in, in the air or on the ground or uh, either or both? Oh, boy. Um, the answer is neither. Um, as long as Russia does not attack a NATO country, as long as Russia does not come directly after an EU country, and I don't mean Ukraine as it has been adopted into the EU, but, you know, <clears throat> core EU, um, we will supply, we will provide supplies, we will provide uh, humanitarian aid, we will provide the Red Cross support, we will provide maybe military advisors, but could you imagine the carnage in this country if Biden were to go back on what he said in the State of the Union, which was we will not engage Russia directly? Not only that, but think about the risk of this. Going back to this notion of rationality and irrationality, Putin will use nukes. Fiona Hill said that famously just recently when she said, oh, yes, he will. Uh, so the last thing the United States wants to do is get into a shooting war with Russia in a, a turf that is... Uh, doesn't matter to Russia, and the U.S. can't protect closely enough, and a tactical nuke gets used on the field of battle, it would be World War III. And so I think the U.S. will never put boots on the ground. Now, as for other NATO countries, I don't know if it's about NATO, but it is about the EU, and I think that is entirely possible. Really? Entirely possible, yes. 
So you think, and my thought, the most likely country to go in there would be Poland. I don't know why. I just get the sense they're a little more militant and they have the bigger military over there in, in Eastern Europe and they feel sort of um, uh, very closely connected to Ukraine and directly threatened by, uh, by Russia. I mean, what, what do you, who do you think is most likely to go in there? Well, I should clarify what I said. When I say NATO countries, the thing is the EU and the NATO, the NATO overlap in many areas. You're not going to see Switzerland go in there. Switzerland will do its sanctions. Switzerland will provide aid. And I think that that is a huge pivot point that nobody ever imagined coming. But yeah. Putin got them there. Putin got them there. But I, it could be Poland. It could be Czech Republic. Uh, what I find most fascinating is that um, his dear friend Orban, Putin's dear friend Orban, is no longer his dear friend. Because I'm Orban is writing who, who, on the wall. He likes his power. He doesn't want to bow at the feet of Vladimir Putin. He's got his strongman act going over there in Hungary, and he's going to um, milk it for all he can. So um, I think this conflagration does have room to, to grow, but the U.S., no. So no. even if that brings up all kinds of problems, what if we, you know, if Poland or Hungary gets involved, doesn't that... Uh, yeah. Activate the dreaded what is it, Section Five or Sec Article Five? And Article Five. Uh, no, actually, um, it only if only if they get attacked. There's, yep. there's a technicality in this, and I don't think we're going to be able to cover it right now. Okay. We are to go to defense of those countries. If Russia were to attack Poland, we would be in. We would be covered under Section Five or Article Five. However, if Poland goes to give aid, they are not acting on behalf of NATO at that point. If Poland goes oh. to fight in the Ukraine, which is not a NATO country, we are not under obligation to back Poland up. We are not, we are, we would be under obligation to, to provide support in Poland, but not to support them fighting Russia. It's a very, it's a very tricky path to walk, but I just don't see the appetite in the U.S. for this. And, and that's actually kind of tragic. And it's easy for me to say as a guy who's almost 60 years old to look at this because I'm not going to get conscripted. I got bum knees and a bad back and asthma. I wouldn't last five minutes on the field of battle. But there is going to come a time, maybe not in this war, maybe not in the next war, but there is going to come a time when America is going to face a situation where we're going to have to put our kids and grandkids and great grandkids lives at stake for something bigger than just maintaining oil prices. We're going to have to get involved in some kind of a conflict that is about a philosophy that we must protect to enshrine and ensure democracy and freedom and not just on our own homeland. You know, I, um, as I said at the outset, I really thought it, it, it was specifically that thought, that realization that maybe we're not done fighting major wars between major powers um, that led me to cry at one point over the past week. I feel like it's a failure f toward our children that, you know, it, there, there was a generation that went through this yes. and it, it tore the world apart and it was awful. And I have wondered if it was a coincidence that recently the generation that fought, war, fought World War II has just about entirely died off. 
and now suddenly we find ourselves, there are people actually considering doing this all over again because nobody who actually lived through it is around anymore. Yeah. Um, and Vietnam, sadly, for the carnage that was Vietnam, it was not this. No. It was a regional battle and a civil war, if you can call it that, but it was not, uh, and it was a proxy war, but there were not tactical nukes in play. Yeah. So anyway. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, it, 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 nukes it struck me as just, what a terrible idea. They actually remove options from the table because if it weren't for nukes, we could go bomb that convoy and uh, they would, it would save the people of Kiev from the destruction yes. and Russia would have to acknowledge defeat and go home. Yes. But because there are nukes in the world, we're stuck sitting on our hands. At that. So by inventing nukes, we have actually limited our options to... Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant insight. <laughs> you are so smart. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so... At the end of this, cold comfort, by the way, I mean, I'd rather, anyway, um, will Russia be stronger or weaker as a result of its invasion of Ukraine? Weaker, without question, weaker. It, it, it may not be obvious in the near term. And right now, yes, there's free fall in the economy and things like that. But there is no way in today's world that even with nukes, Russia comes out of this a stronger state. They will be, let's say they occupy Ukraine. Let's say they get away with this. And the world does precious little. And the Ukrainian people feel supported, but abandoned. And they, they, they wind up living under this same dictatorial oppressive regime that they escaped just a scant 30 years ago. This country will be decimated. The civilian infrastructure will be ground to pulp. It will take so much money to rebuild. And with Russia isolated as the, the uh, occupying force, nobody's going to help them rebuild Ukraine and just pour money into the Russian economy, the punishment will need to continue. And so I think Russia, regardless of the outcome of this, regardless of whether they stay or go, even if they leave, even if Putin were to withdraw, there is now a deep skepticism amongst the EU and the US and, and hawks on Russia that they can be trusted at all. And so, yeah, definitely weaker and certainly weaker on the global stage. This doesn't, this does nothing for Russia's uh, strength on the global stage. And, and, and that's why, I, so as you say that, I mean, I, I agree with pretty much all of that. And I keep coming back to the only reasonable choice, if I'm a Russian with any power at all, is to throw Putin under the bus, pin it all on him. Yeah. Say, We're sorry. That guy's, I can't believe he did that. We're going to get him out of power. And, and that's the only, that's the best path forward available to Russia right now. Yeah. But they probably won't take it. Yeah. Um, so uh, did you have some other uh, um, or points that you wanted to tack on there? Yeah, actually, this is this is one that, uh, you know, and this is a difficult one. I I will say this straight up. We're not supposed to call names. We're not supposed to assume 
motives and such. And I, I honestly don't know what this guy's motive is. But why is Tucker Carlson such an apologist for Russia? I mean, this is from his Twitter feed. And I'm looking for an answer here. And maybe you can give me some insight to this. Maybe you can help me understand this because I don't get it. Twitter feed, Tucker Carlson. Why do Democrats want to hate Putin? Now, this is a few days ago. Keep in mind, he has Sorry, changed. Why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He has changed his tune. Yes. And he has tempered it. But this is this is from about a week and a half ago. Why do Democrats want you to hate? I, I feel like I should do the impersonation. Why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? Has Putin shipped you know. every middle class job in your town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked your businesses? Is he teaching your kids to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Does he eat dogs? What is the uh, is the eating dogs a reference to something that I don't? I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> so, I have no idea. Now and here here's what crosses my mind is and 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 I use him as a proxy for these other people, like for example, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who was on with uh, Trey Gowdy on Sunday night on Fox, and uh, you know, here's here's he he's out there. He's like, oh, the Ukrainians should just give up and go, and and, and it's like. They're not even really, you know, they're, they're part of Russia. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute, dude, this is like chock full of misinformation. You are preaching Russian talking points. And then thank God, thank God, Jennifer Griffin comes up right after him. I mean, it was like, you're sitting there going manna from heaven. And here she goes, I don't know that 10 minutes is enough time to combat the misinformation he just laid out there. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, you go girl. But my question is, why are these guys working overtime to try to justify or at least tamp down the visceral hatred of a guy who is unleashing untold carnage on innocent civilians. Yeah. Um, boy, how to answer that with the caveat that my answer. I'm not, I'm not looking for you to defend them, by the way. I'm just, I'm just like, I'm mystified. Okay. I, I, I'm going to spitball, you know, two theories. One is, I believe that tweet came out before Russia actually invaded, right? It did. It so, did. It so about a week and a half ago. I think, first of all, he never expected Russia to actually invade. So he thought that this was all more or less an academic question. And as you acknowledged, since Russia actually invaded, he has, in fact, changed his tune. Um I mean, he has certainly hasn't recanted on any of this. No, he has not. But he has stopped saying it. Um, and I think the other thing, this is just a thought, is that uh, it's the old team mentality that um, we want to direct everybody's anger at Biden. We don't want to allow Biden to unite the country in any in any way, regardless of how justified or reasonable it is. Um, yeah, and I, I think, why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? I think his rhetorical answer is that he was viewing the whole thing as an effort to distract the American public from how terrible Biden has been. And Tucker Carlson and a lot of people want the American public 
fully focused on how, how terrible the Democrats are. And up until the moment that the um, Russians actually invaded, the cost for, for playing politics in that way was, was lower. Yeah. And now that the Russians have actually invaded, he has been forced to change his tune. But I, I think that was that would be my suspicion. I don't watch a lot of Tucker, Tucker Carlson. I have seen some of clips of him recently, but that's just, well, those are just my guesses. He, he, you know, there's the old saying, uh, all PR is good PR, even if it's bad PR. This is one where it just wasn't good. Anyway, hey, we are, we are up against another break here. Uh, and we do have one more segment uh, to wrap our wonderful podcast uh so uh stay with us and we'll be back after this Okay, uh, welcome back. We are uh, returning to the Don't Get Mad podcast, which has been especially named the Don't Get Sad podcast for uh, this week of news. Um, and I actually wanted to cycle back toward uh, something that Steve, Steve, that you said earlier on about uh, found yourself praying for Putin's death. And um, you were assuming, and I think a lot of Christians would, that that's a very unchristian sort of thing to do. Um, and I think a lot of Christians will debate that. Um, there are certainly Christian denominations who believe that violence is uh, never acceptable under any circumstances, but then again, I think there's more Christians who subscribe to the just war theory, which is that in certain limited circumstances, uh, violence is the, more, the, is the morally correct thing to do. Um, and I think I was going to say that... Uh, Putin's death is the easiest way out of this, is the best way out of this, that if I were able to do so, if we had the capacity to do so, I would advocate an assassination mission by the United States um, to, uh, to take him out. Um, and I think that this is difficult to square with a Christian worldview, to actually uh, advocate the death of someone. But I think the, the just war theory is all about choosing the lesser of two evils, and it is evil to kill a person. However, it is also evil, and I would argue more evil, to watch the deaths of many innocent people if you have the power to stop it. Um, and so the thing, so when you pray for Putin's death, I think it very, the morality of that is very much based on the motivation. If the motivation is, I want Putin to die because, man, I would feel so good, that would feel so satisfying to watch him die, I think that is morally wrong. Um, if you pray for Putin's death so that uh, the deaths of innocent Ukrainians can be prevented, if it's a regrettable that, you know, if you take no joy, yeah, I mean, I think that's, the Christian moral imperative that I believe, and again, Christians will disagree with me, um, but I believe that if you're a soldier 
uh, or anybody in a job that, that a police officer who uh, could be required to shoot somebody under certain circumstances, the sin would be um, enjoying the death. Um, but if you kill uh, without taking pleasure in it, um, if you kill for the purpose of preventing greater evil, then I think that's a morally correct action. And uh, hmm. I think, like I said, there's there's certain denominations that specifically reject that. I mean, I don't know. Do you go the the do you take the pacifist view or do you take the the just war view? Well, it's it's an interesting question. I'll I'll just say this: when I was 18 years old and I had to register for the draft, I registered as a conscientious objector. Okay, I was uh, thinking at that time about uh, possible future in the ministry and uh, wasn't quite there yet. I had to have some conversion experience after that, that really got me thinking about it, but I could not bring myself to believe that I would be on the, the battlefield and kill someone else. Now that was when I was 18. I'm more tilting toward the just war theory, a just war philosophy. Um, when we went into Central Europe in uh, the mid-90s to stop the slaughter of, uh, gosh. Kosovo and uh, yes. Croatia. And then... Croatia. That was a just military action in my, my perspective. And in fact, I think it was probably one of the best just military actions because you were stopping something. But then again, the problem is from an American perspective, we often pick and choose what we consider to be just. We are not consistently just in our military escapades. And so that's what makes this particularly difficult. Now, back to your back to your point. I appreciate what you said about that. I, I will wrestle with this, I think, um, for quite some time. But I just believe that this is a man who, if ever there were a human being who is if not irredeemable, must be stopped. Yeah. Must be stopped, whatever that cost is. And I don't believe that it's right for countries to go and, and commit assassination plots against other leaders. Boy, shouldn't we have done it against Kim Jong, whoever? Take yeah. your pick. Whatever the Kims, you know, in that lineage needed it. Um, but in this particular case, he is clearly... Um, detached from any kind of um, well, anyway, I could I could belabor that for hours. Yeah. Um, um, so it's so so we've resolved. It's a man. It's a tough question. Yes. Yes. Tough question. Uh, let's do some quick hits here, and we'll we'll drive to the end here and uh, wrap in a few minutes. Uh, so okay, we have there's other nine, news as well. Uh, yes, other news. Uh, okay. Well. The world never stops turning, uh, sadly. Um, we have the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, side note, Tucker Carlson goes and calls for her LSATs, but he never <laughs> called for it for Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, or Coney Barrett. Gee willikers. Uh, but the question I have is this. That's just one of my little sides. You know where I feel on Mr. Carlson. Um the question I have is this, should the 
Republicans give it back just as hard to her as their nominees got it? Or is this time to turn the page and return to an era when there was less of this pure venom? Well, as far as the other nominees got it, you're referring to... um... Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett. They they I think mostly Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett. Gorsuch was kind of more in the classic mold of he was conservative, but he was going to get a, he was going to get uh, put through committee, and then he was going to get a full vote. What was the vote on Gorsuch? It was more than half. It was something oh, like yeah. seventy in favor or seventy five yeah. or something. Yeah, Gorsuch okay. got a he was he was considered you know a conservative, but he was not going to be the, their litmus test. Even though, to be completely blunt, there was a lot of venom because of the Merrick Garland. Uh, yes. Hold up. Yeah. Which, that's just Mitch McConnell being. Mitch. Yeah. We could do several podcast episodes about that uh, debacle. So I thought Amy Coney Barrett was treated relatively fairly. Now, I think it was a party line vote in the end. Yeah. Um, but all of the questions that she faced while they were, um, they, well, they were certainly pointed uh, and I think the vote, man, I, I really wish the vote shouldn't have been that close because I think she's eminently qualified. Um, so as far as being treated as uh, being grilled as much as Amy Coney Barrett, that would be fine. Um, I do think, I do wish that we would return to the era when the confirmation process was much more about the qualifications than about the ideological slant. I do think that uh, the president should have a right to to pick somebody uh, that advocates a judicial philosophy that that he approves of. There, the fact is, there are several schools of judicial thought, and the president being elected, uh, yeah, I I think gets to pick somebody qualified from the school of thought to which he subscribes. Uh, now, so as far as what advice what, and sorry. consent. It's back to an advise and consent kind of a way of doing it. Yes, not a grill and destroy, which is really what they did to Kavanaugh. Um, I thought Kavanaugh, that was that was gross, and it, it blew up in their faces. Now, as far as raising questions, it seemed like my take on that whole thing was that the first um, accusation sounded plausible, um, but then they got those, you know, the second or third accusers get came up with these wilder and wilder theories. Um, no, he didn't deserve that. And I, I don't want uh, this woman to, I don't know very much about Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, I'm going well, to. Well, she doesn't have anything like that, as near as anybody <laughs> can tell. She doesn't have anything like that going on where there were like, you know, that kind of stuff hanging around her neck. Yeah. Um, Although I also don't suspect that uh, being a black woman, uh, that she will get in front of the committee and go, I like beer. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I'm just saying. It's, it well, seems a little far-fetched. They asked him about it. Uh, I mean, uh, at that point, no, that's not the wise thing to do. Amy Coney Barrett had you know, brilliant composure. She didn't face the same sort of ridiculous grilling that that Ka- i shouldn't say ridiculous the same there was, like you're saying there was there was some plausibility to or correction not plausibility there was reason to investigate and reason to to talk about that you know christine blasey for yeah but 
I do agree with you in one respect in that uh, he, there were some things that were just brought up that you're sitting there going. Yeah. Where are we going here? Yeah. They started um, things like his yearbook picture. Yeah. I I mean, it it started getting ridiculous and yeah, I mean, it became a circus. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love it if we stopped that Uh, and, you know, barring anything dramatic or anything disqualifying, I don't think, uh, I, I mean, I think if I was a Republican senator, I believe I would probably vote to confirm her pending some other, so pending something disqualifying, and that yeah. would not include her judicial philosophy. Um, moving along, uh, January 6th committee handed down, uh, or not handed down, submitted some legal filings today, one of which included this blistering blistering takedown by Greg uh, Jacob of uh, John Eastman. There's a there's a back and forth. I don't know that I have this up here. Uh, do I have it up here? Uh, yes, I do have this up here. Um, and in, in this exchange, this is the email smoking gun, as it were, um, about John Eastman's, uh, I'm not supposed to judge, uh, but his his somewhat inventive his somewhat inventive approach to trying to overthrow the election, um, and there is some there is some seriously juicy stuff in here. If you have not looked at this, you really should go get it. Um, I think we should probably put the link to this letter uh, uh, to this filing out there. It's available on uh, storage.courtlistener.com recap, and then there's a whole string of this. But I want to read this one excerpt. Um, do, 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 do. Here we go. This is uh, Greg Jacob, uh, Pence's uh, legal counsel, uh, re- responding to John Eastman. Eastman had just gotten done saying, uh, outlining uh, this this crazy notion uh, that constitutionally Pence had any opportunity to change anything about the election. I do apologize for that particular language, Jacob says, uh, which was unbecoming of me. He had just used the BS word with uh, with uh, Eastman. And reflective of a man whose wife and three young children are currently glued to news reports as I moved and moved about to locations where we will be safe from people, quote, mostly peaceful, unquote, as CNN might say, who believed with all their hearts the theory that they were sold about the powers that could legitimately be exercised at the Capitol on this day. Please forgive me for that. But the advice provided has, whether intended or not, functioned as a serpent in the ear of the President of the United States, the most powerful office in the world. And here we are. For the record, we are middle in we are in the middle in, yeah, we were in the middle of an open, widely televised debate that was airing every single point that you gave members of Congress to make when all of this went down and we had to suspend. And he's referring to the January 6th insurrection. And he goes on, um, respectfully, I'm going to skip ahead here. Respectfully, it was gravely, gravely irresponsible for you to entice the president with an academic theory that had no legal viability and that you well know we would lose before any judge who heard and decided the case. And if the courts declined to hear it, I suppose it could only be decided in the streets. What I find most interesting about this, and and the reason I'm reading this, is because you know, here we are talking about Ukraine, 
and the the assault on their democracy. They are democratically, they have a democratically elected president. And here at home, we are still wrestling through the fallout of what happened last January and what happened in the days after the election. And here you have the legal counsel to the vice president of the United States in a letter that is now part of the committee hearing process that probably nobody ever thought was going to have to be included or get out. And it's clear that even within the administration, there were legal scholars or legal counsel, at least, saying, you're crazy. Let it go. I guess my question to you on this, Andy, since, you know, in this area, we probably represent slightly different perspectives, although I know you are not the you are not going to speak for the insurrectionist wing. I, I know that about you. But my question to you is this. When you have this kind of give and take and in the days after an election leading up to the certification, is there a responsibility for the process to play out or for the clock to run out? Because we know there are some gaps in there. We know there are some problems with the Electoral College Act. We know that there are some problems with how some of these these legal uh, opportunities for remedy occur because there is a clock. The election is the first Tuesday in November. The certification occurs January 6th. The question I have is, which should which do we have a responsibility to do to let the clock run out and then that's it or to let all possible legal remedies play out no matter how in this case even within the administration how crazy the argument might sound so you're suggesting should we have allowed should we have i i guess given them more time and opportunity to air these theories about how pence can reject the certification? Is that your, what you're suggesting? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying, because, um, I mean, obviously, I have a particular slant on that, and it's right. not probably difficult to figure out, but I am curious to what you think about whether or not these... I, is, is the clock more important, or is the what somebody might think is the truth more important? To my... Um, okay. In my mind, the law... The whatever law is in force at the time is the important thing. Um, and I said that I remember because, of course, it came up kind of in the other direction back in 2000 when it was Bush and uh, Bush v. Gore, Bush, Bush v. Gore, where certain things had to be certified. I think the way that the system is set up, there is a clock for a reason. The reason being, if there's no well defined point where the debate has to end, then it can go on uh, forever and ever, uh, as long as people try to game the system. So mm. my, and so in this case, it works against uh, the people that Trump were, that were working for Trump to try to, uh, try to change how the election came out. This is an unpopular take that I don't think anybody really agrees with, uh, other than I'm kind of in the same line with it seems like Mitch McConnell has mostly this view of it that I don't know that I would say Trump is guilty in a of a criminal conspiracy. I would say that these ideas are wrong. Um, I'm not a legal scholar, but on the face of it, I kind of agree with what Pence's counsel said. They seem pretty clearly wrong. 
And I think the process played out as it was supposed to, that, you know, Trump and his and several of his allies had one view that Pence had this power, and so they were going to try to exercise it. But um, other people in the government did not. And, uh, you know, we have this great system of power diffused to a number of different sources, and uh, the system worked. The whole, yeah, I didn't even touch the insurrection, but I would say <laughs> we, um, we need to scrupulously follow the rules as they are in place at the time that the election took place. So if the rule says everything must be certified by a certain date, then I think we got to follow that. And if it turns out that, you know, we think it should change, then we got to change the rule for the next time. Because uh, once you start changing rules on the fly, man, uh, th I think that undermines democracy uh, more, more than anything else. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a topic we could, and that, that was going to be one of our topics but yes. what, uh, for a previous, uh, for a previous one. So I'm glad, thank you for perspective on that. Um, all right. We, we really have run the gamut here tonight and we're real close to the end. Um, Andy, I think we, why don't you wrap this up a little bit with some of your thoughts about, uh, the Ukraine situation, and then uh, I'll I'll close us out here with a note about how you can get involved uh, and help in the Ukraine, uh, the assault on Ukraine. Okay, so uh, my closing thoughts on the Ukraine, and again, I, like I said, a, a lot of this aspects of this, most of it, the whole fiasco, uh, is discouraging, um, and you know I was in the awkward position of. Um, I do take the uh, point of view that I discuss these sorts of worlds, world events, good or bad. Usually I try to discuss them with my kids. And uh, boy, this was, uh, <laughs> it was tough to try and explain why people are bombing each other. Um, uh, a lot of you have probably seen the clip of Mr. Rogers gave a, a talk after, uh, came on TV and said something after the 9-11 attacks. And uh Boy, there's a master of, uh, you know, telling people how to deal with difficult situations. And what he said is, you know, always look for the people helping. Even in any disaster, there's always people trying to help. Um, and uh, actually, maybe that leads into what you're going to say. But it also leads into, I mean, we have seen this. This is a terrible thing. However, there are people behaving like heroes. This is an awful story, but I want to highlight that there are, is some good news coming out of Ukraine. The Ukrainian people are behaving like superheroes. I told my daughter about the, the one guy who, um, one soldier was reported as he blew up a bridge to stop the tanks and uh, he knew he couldn't get out in time. He blew himself up along with the bridge and he laid down his life to save his country. And uh, my daughter's comment very astutely was, my, my daughter says, that's an Avengers move. That's, you know, he's act, real people actually acting like uh, superheroes. So the world expected the Ukrainians to quickly surrender against an overwhelming attack, and uh, no one would have faulted them if they had. And instead, we've been getting these stories of heroism and courage, uh, soldiers and civilians willing, willing to put themselves in danger or, or even explicitly lay down their lives to hang on to their dream of a free, independent, and democratic Ukraine. 
And the world seeing that, it really spurred the international community to a more unified and aggressive action. If you remember, a lot of countries uh, were pretty hesitant to help, uh, to help to any great degree. I think a lot of them thought it was pointless to send weapons or impose sanctions that were going to cost them something if the war would be over quickly. And then once they saw how the Ukrainians were fighting heroically, it became impossible for the world to sit by and, uh, and to do nothing. Steve, what did you want to tack on to that? Well, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, we don't have young kids in our house anymore. Um, and we do have two granddaughters, <clears throat> but they're far too young to either know what's going on or to know, um, to be talked to about the subject. And I thank God for that, because my hope is that by the time they are old enough, this will all be a faded memory and lives will begin to be healed and uh, Ukraine will be restored. <clears throat> and even in Russia, even Russia will be healed of the scourge of this. The only word that comes to mind is monster of Vladimir Putin. And it will not be some other monster who takes his place, but it will be genuine, uh, genuine lust for democracy, for, um, for true rule of law. But there is something we can do. And there's something I want to encourage everybody who listens to this to do. Pick an organization, one that is reputable, not some scam. Be careful of that. But pick an organization. There are so many out there right now. Uh, Catholic Relief Funds is uh, one that just popped right up in my feed. Uh, they are a reputable organization. International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, there are so many out there that are going to be tapped to the max with what is now estimated to be millions of refugees who are going to be crossing into the EU from Ukraine, do something. Don't just pray, do something. Send five bucks, send a hundred bucks, send a thousand bucks, whatever it is, do something. And uh, maybe, just maybe together with the collective will of the world, we can help to uh, minimize the suffering or at least to bring some comfort uh, to people who are going to be displaced and going to be struggling for many years to come. So may God have the glory in all of this and may uh, the miracles uh, that we know can happen take place out there in that country that is under siege right now. And uh, I just pray for the wisdom and the strength of their leadership and for all the families here in the U.S. and around the world who have relatives and loved ones still in Ukraine who are fighting for the freedom of that country, I pray for their comfort as well. Anything that we can do, we want to do to help uh, help lift them up as well. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, this has been Don't Be Mad, uh, where we really try to dig into these topics and give you uh couple of different perspectives on everything and, and hopefully show uh, folks that we can have good spirited back and forth and come out loving each other. And that's, uh, that's what we hope to do here. So have a great 
evening, day, whatever it is. And may God bless you. Amen. Have a good night, everybody. Take care. Thank you.